So we journey on uh, our prayer journey together, Lessons uh, in Prayer, part two of our series that takes us right the way through to the summer, uh, what it means for God to teach us uh, to pray. What does it mean to pray like Jesus? What does it mean to see God's kingdom come in the way that Jesus expected us to see as we pray? And this morning, this whole issue of uh, fasting. How many of you uh, have ever eaten too much? And the rest of you are lying. Hands down, everybody. Thank you. Uh, there have been times in all our lives when we've eaten just a little bit too much because you've thought to yourself, I'll have just one more. How many of you uh, have ever fasted? Raise your hand. How many of you have fasted in the last six months? Okay, that's really helpful. Thank you very much. There are all kinds of things in the Bible that are weird. In fact, a few uh, days ago at our team meeting, we were talking about some of the things that, that, <clears throat> that the Bible talks about and uh, uh, then comparing it to some of the, in inverted commas, strange things that some people feel called by God to do today. But it struck me afresh, whichever way you look at the Bible, uh, on almost every page, God is asking people to do things that are, to say the least, a little bit different. And maybe fasting comes into that category. It's clear as you read the Bible that people fasted. This lady who was a widow devoted her life to prayer and fasting. Anna, the prophetess, living in uh, the temple. That kind of life, though, uh, almost a, a monastic existence, seems a, a world away from the kind of world that you and I live in from day to day. In fact, the whole idea of going without something seems a world away from our culture. Uh, the landscape is dotted with shrines. The Golden Arches is a shrine where many of you worship. Uh, or, if you're a bit more sophisticated, you'll worship at a pizza temple rather than a golden arch. Uh, and fasting seems out of place, out of step with this world where whatever need I have, I seek to satisfy it as quickly as I possibly can. This idea of going without seems very different. They worshipped the Lord and they fasted. They gave something up. And the Lord spoke to them. But it's at odds with the way we try and meet all of our needs as rapidly as we can. And we encourage one another to do that. In our populist culture, you can have what you want. If you can't afford it, then you can have it now anyway and pay later. You can satisfy any desire that you have, have it now, even though you might find that you'll pay later in different ways for it. So the notion of waiting, of pausing, of delaying something for ourselves or giving something up is very counter the culture in which we live. But then as Caleb reminds us, tucked away in the Old Testament, we're called to be different. We're called to be different. And when I read that in my own personal quiet time a few weeks ago, the word different struck me in a new way. And I'm challenged by how much I am the same as everybody else. I'm challenged by how much the church is the same as everybody else. 
And we've championed being the same because we're being incarnational. We want to be like them so that we can relate to them. Well, we've become so like them, you can no longer tell us apart. We're called to be different. This would be different, wouldn't it? This would be different. And so as we come to this, this call to be different, uh, this, this call to, to stand against this flow that says, if you need it, get it. If you want it, have it, comes this teaching about fasting. Fasting, what is it? Deliberately going without uh, a normal function. Most of us think about food, but you can fast uh, uh, with many things. Or, or, uh, or, but why? And Heather's point was really important. Why? Why do we give it up? For the sake of giving it up? No. We give it up for the sake of spiritual activity. We give up in order to be free to do. So we read in the Bible about people fasting for a day, a week, 40 days, uh, and so on. And uh, imagine, after 40 days, you begin to starve. So when you get home and you're cooking the dinner and your little ones say, I'm starving, they haven't begun to understand what that might mean. If you haven't eaten this morning... All this talk about fasting reminds you about food, and you're feeling hungry already. And now you regret that I mentioned that because the secretions in your stomach have suddenly gone to work, and you think, I feel even worse now he's drawn attention to my own hunger. Give up. What does it mean to give up, to go without? Well, an alarming number of people in the Bible uh, live this kind of way. Moses, the great leader of the people in the Exodus, uh, fasted so that he could spend time face-to-face with God. Uh, David, the great king and leader, fasted at times when he was longing to see God answer his prayers. Daniel uh, pleaded to God in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Esther, the great story of Esther, the only book in the Bible where God isn't mentioned, but he fills every moment. Pray for me, fast for me. This is a crucial moment in God's purpose. Who will stand with me in prayer and fasting? Jesus, of course, as he began his ministry, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Paul, as he began his ministry, fasted for three days before he was then sent out for a period of training and then uh, teaching. And then there are times when the community was called together to fast, the Day of Atonement, a very special day when they realized that they were totally dependent on God for forgiveness and uh, to be made at one again, atonement, at one again with God. They fasted. It's a mark of what God was doing. They fasted in times of crisis. Jehoshaphat resolved when he heard the news that a big army was coming against him and his people, chose to fast. Most of us would choose to fight. But he chose to fast. And he gathered the people around. And the people of Judah came together to fast, to seek help from uh, the Lord. Times of need. Ezra talks about a difficult journey. A difficult journey that uh, they needed to go on and then uh, uh, times when they needed God's protection. And he called the people, he said, let's fast for this moment and reach out to God in that way. Times of renewal, Joel, 
talks about uh, times of the renewal of the people uh, and how the, an expression of them getting serious with God again, an expression of them returning to him was to fast. And uh, lastly, at times of repentance, the Ninevites believed God and expressed that belief and that turning around by fasting and God blessed them instead of uh, punishing them. And then Zechariah gives us uh, kind of a, a, a glimpse into the life of the people and how for the, the regular worshipper, fasting was part of the routine of worship. The fourth, the fifth, the seventh and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions as the people fasted. But this is the worst bit, I think. The most challenging bit. And all these great people in the Old Testament that fasted, and you think, well, uh, okay, that sounds good, but I'm not like them. And then Jesus comes along and says, follow me. And when he preaches his Sermon on the Mount, he, he, he offers a number of stipulations about what it means, what does it look like to follow Jesus. And here are three that come in a row. When you give. There was the assumption that as a follower of Jesus, you would give. Jesus was referring to the Old Testament tithe, the 10%. There was the uh, assumption that a follower of Jesus would give 10% of his income back to the life of the church. Why? Because the church needs it? No. No. You give it because that's what your worship is. That's the way the people were taught in the Old Testament, to recognize God's supremacy, the fact that God comes first, so you give the first of your income. And Jesus says it so matter-of-factly because everyone, in his understanding, would be doing just that. So when you give, and when you pray, and it's then that he teaches about the Lord's Prayer as we've come to understand it. And then he says, when you fast, when you do it, not if, not but, not the, the special people. This is not a, a list of, of kind of ascending uh, uh, commands that, you know, you, if you're not very spiritual, well, you'll give a bit. And if you're a bit more spiritual, maybe you'll give and pray a little bit. And if then you're uh, really committed, you're going to give and you're going to pray and uh, you're going to throw in the occasional fast for good measure. This was the mark of someone that follows Jesus. It's a challenge to me. Have I got my giving right? Have I got my praying right, which is our focus for this whole year? Have I got my fasting right? Because that's what Jesus says it means to follow him. And I'm challenged. And so for a little while, the disciples didn't fast. And John's disciples were fasting, and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came to Jesus one day and they said, how come? How is it then, if we're supposed to fast, that your disciples aren't fasting right now? And Jesus said, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. There will be a time to fast. Now is that time. Now is that time. The bridegroom is not with us. He has been taken away. It is a time to fast. And the early church understood that. Clearly, as you look through the Acts of the Apostles, prayer and fasting was important to them. By the time uh, the church established its teaching in around 100 AD, just so 30, 40, 50, 60 years after Jesus, very important document that some of you will read if you've done church history called the Didache, talks about fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays. It was part of what they understood it meant to follow Jesus. 
It fell, as so often these disciplines do, into disrepute. John Wesley tried to revive it when he started uh, uh, or developed early Methodism, the Methodist Church. And uh, he celebrates the day that George II in 1756 called the whole nation to uh, a fast, a solemn day, because of a threatened invasion from the French. And uh, uh, John Wesley writes in his journal, the fast day was a glorious day such as London has scarce seen since the restoration. Every time in the city, sorry, every church in the city was more than full and a solemn seriousness sat on every face. Surely God heareth prayer and there will yet be a lengthening of our tranquility. And then he writes a bit later, a footnote at the bottom, humility was turned to national rejoicing for the threatened invasion by the French was averted. Praise God. Otherwise, we might be speaking a little differently than we are this morning, amongst other things. But the food might be better. <laughs> and the sun might shine a bit more. Would that work? And so there's all these, all these people through, through history that led renewals, restorations of God's people who said, fasting is something alongside prayer that we have lost and we lose it at our peril. So Luther and Calvin and Knox and Wesley and Edwards and Brainard and Finney and so on all talk about the rediscovery of a personal and a corporate walk with God that is marked by prayer and fasting. So what's the purpose of it? What's it about or why do it? Whatever question you you most want to answer. Well, the first one is is just simply this, because of obedience. And we always want to know why. And one of the irritating questions our children ask us when we tell them to do something is, why? Why? And you answer it patiently, and then there's another why, and you're a little less patient. And after the third why, you're very impatient, and then you say the words you promised yourself you'd never ever say, because I say so. And when your parents said that to you, you said, I'm never ever going to be a parent like that, and you've turned out just like your mum or your dad. What a delightful thought on this Sunday morning. But there is a sense, isn't there? That if the God of heaven should say live like this, we should do it just because he says so. Just because he says so. Just because. And the Bible's littered with incredible stories of people doing something that made no sense just because. So the chief army officer from a neighboring country called Naaman in 2 Kings 5, He's got leprosy. He had everything in life until his health went, and then he had nothing. And he's desperate. He cannot cure his leprosy. All the wisdom of his nation cannot solve his problem. And he writes to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel says, what on earth can I do? I can't sort this out. And Elisha hears about it and says, okay, uh, send him to me. And he says to the man very simply, go and wash seven times in the river Jordan. Now the Jordan was the filthiest river ever. It made absolutely no sense. And, and, and Naaman, it says, was really angry. Really angry. Uh, and he kind of, my paraphrase, he kind of said, I wanted someone to bless me, to pray with me, to anoint me with oil, to play soothing music so that I would be healed. No, go seven times, wash in the filthiest river. He said, no, that's absolutely ridiculous. You do not understand that Jordan is filthy dirty. Where I come from has nice clean water. Why would I wash in this river? I could have washed back at home in much better. And then he had some really good mates who said, come on, Naaman. If God had asked you to do a really hard thing, would you have done it? Probably not, says Naaman. This is easy, isn't it? Stupid, maybe, but easy. Do something stupid, but easy. And he goes, okay. And he's healed. 
straight away. It made no sense. Nothing logical about washing seven times in the Jordan. But in the end, he did it just because God said so. And maybe that could be the end now. We just said, let's just do this just because God says so, because it's about obedience. But it's also about worship. Worship is about centering on God. And when we let go of something, it means that we can hold something. If your hands are full, you cannot hold anything. So if you need to hold something, you put something else down. If your heart is full or your life is full, you cannot hold something. So you put something down, you let something go in order to focus and grasp more fully on something else. Worship is to centre on God and fasting is to do just that. Not for its physical benefits, of which there are some. Not for the healing properties of fasting, of which there are many, and you can pay a fortune to be detoxed in some health spa these days. But you fast, you let go of something in order to focus more fully on God. It's about worship. And there's this frightening verse in Zechariah. Ask all the people of the land, says the Lord, and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seven months for the past 70 years, was it really for me? Wow. You imagine, you imagine coming to Burlington for 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, and one morning God whispers in your ear, have you done it for me? truth is we can sail very close to that wind can't we i can do it for a hundred reasons before i do it for him i can fast because i'll feel better about myself because i'll be doing a spiritual discipline and i'll go out with a glow on my face because i've fasted and you're bound to notice or or i'll fast because um if, if I fast and then I pray, God's more likely to hear me. That may be true, but I'll manipulate God. If I fast, then I, somehow I'll grab his attention. Or I'll fast because and because and because. And it, no, will you do it for me? That's worship, but it's raw, core, isn't it? God's saying, do this, no other reason, but for me. That's worship, do it for me. Because I say, do it for me. So a quick kind of side challenge for a moment. Think of all the things that you are doing that you think might be remotely spiritually related. And then think of all the things that you do in your life. And then ask yourself, who do I do those for, really? Who do I do those for? I don't want to be in that place. When after doing something for a long period of time, God taps me on the shoulder and says, well, was it for me? It's kind of a rhetorical question, isn't it? God knew the answer. And it was for them to discover and for me to discover the answer when God knocks on my shoulder, taps on my shoulder in that way. Uh, uh, No doubt that fasting deepens uh, our prayer lives. Much is made in the Bible about the connection between fasting and asking. Ezra did it several occasions. The great Nehemiah who pioneered a, a prayer and social transformation movement that made such a difference. It all began with fasting and, and praying. It was part of the, the, the disciplines of his life. Now notice with me just for a moment how, how fast...
fasting, then, is not some kind of separate thing, some kind of uh, really high spiritual elite activity for the spiritual person in your pew. Look down your pew for a moment. Decide who the spiritual person is. Some of you aren't looking. I can see you're not looking. And once you've decided who the spiritual person is, think to yourself, well, fasting isn't just for them. Fasting is one of the rhythms that sustains obedience, worship, and prayer. Can you get a more basic foundation for your Christian life than obedience and worship and prayer? No. What, what, what are one of the tools that the Bible says it, it supports and feeds? Sorry, no pun intended. What is the, the thing that feeds worship and obedience and prayer? Fasting feeds those things. Not an extracurricular activity, but part of what it means to get into this rhythm of obedience and worship and praying. And, and so we might go on. The next one, cleansing. There's, something, there's stuff in you that needs cleansing, isn't there? There's stuff in me that needs sorting out. The muck in our lives that separates me from God. And I'm so used to it being there, I no longer notice it's there. And I spend quite a bit of energy making sure that you don't see the muck in me. That nearly rhymed, didn't it? And you spend a lot of energy making sure that I don't see the muck in you. And sometimes we spend so much energy that we forget that it's even there and our lives are kind of heavy and our, and our walk with God is distant and we're kind of spiritually lukewarm at best and cold and it's because the stuff's there. And I don't know whether you've experienced this when you fasted or, or maybe if, you, if you've never tried it, think about what this means. Uh, uh, very quickly, when you start going without something like food, what's really in you comes to the surface. So you miss a meal and you become crabby. That's not true of any of you, is it? Let me use that as an example because it won't be true here. Okay? You miss a meal and you get crabby. Well, are you really crabby because you've missed a meal when you've been overindulging for most of your life? No. There's a crabbiness in you that rises to the surface. And you begin to see what's really there. So fasting isn't for the faint-hearted, because I tell you, when you look inside, if I look inside, I'm not sure I want to see what's really there. But if I don't see it, I cannot lift it to God and be cleansed from it. So I need to see it, not to be feel, made to feel guilty or condemned. God doesn't do that. He lifts it in me so that I can confess it to him and receive his forgiveness and know his healing. But it's only when it's there. And so as I begin to let something down, it creates space for something else to, uh, to rise. Cleansing. Trust. Trust. We live as if there are things we absolutely need. And quite rightly so, in all kinds of, uh, of rights and charters uh, around the world to protect people. They say there are certain human rights that every human being needs. Food would be high on the agenda, obviously. It's a, it's, it's a right, it's a responsibility that every human being has food. Yet Jesus comes along and Jesus says, there is something that sustains me that is even more fundamental than food. There is something that sustains me as the person God's made me to be that is more fundamental than those things that would be at the top of the list that every human being needs to be a human. And Jesus said it like this. You see, man shall not live by bread alone. That's not enough. What man actually needs 
is the word and the voice of God. And so one time when the disciples were starving, so they thought, I love the way Jesus uses these teachable moments. The disciples are like, ah, where's the next bit of food coming from? Jesus says, who cares? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. If I do God's will, it will nourish me at a deeper, more sustaining level than even the food that you crave. Can you imagine craving to do God's work more than you will crave for your lunch if I don't bring this service in before half past three? Can you imagine? You'll be going beside yourself inside. But can you imagine craving for God's work at a deeper level than that hunger? That was Jesus' experience. That was his walk. He said there's something deeper, more sustaining, more nourishing. Fasting begins to get us in touch with that truth. The great writer Dallas Willard puts it like this, fasting confirms our utter dependence upon God by finding in him a source of sustenance beyond food. Through it, we learn by experience that God's word to us is a life substance, that it is food, bread alone, that gives life, but also the words that proceed from the mouth of God. Sometimes you just need to fast because you need a breakthrough. Do you need a breakthrough? Most of us here will need a breakthrough of some kind. Some of you will be looking for a breakthrough in a relationship. Some of you will be looking for a breakthrough in your job. Some of you will be looking for a breakthrough in what next. Some of you will long for a breakthrough in your health. Some of you will be burdened by a breakthrough for somebody else or, or something else. Uh, and the disciples were praying for a breakthrough in a young lad and they couldn't achieve the breakthrough. And they said to Jesus, why could we not break through? Jesus says prayer and fasting. Oh, oh, prayer and fasting. Fasting helps you listen. Fasting helps you listen. When Daniel received that vision that was core uh, to his life in many ways, core to to the unveiling of God's purpose, if you know the story of, of Daniel, it says he gets the vision and then it explains very kindly what mode what context Daniel was in when God spoke to him and revealed things to him that clearly. At that time, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three weeks. During that time, I'd ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips. It was in that moment of, of laying aside some stuff that he heard God, like maybe he'd never have heard God before. To hear God is life. And we don't hear him enough. And it's not because he isn't speaking. One of the things I've discovered is that when I stop, God is is speaking. and and, And he's like always speaking. It's just that I'm not always listening. Fasting tunes us in to what God is saying. Fasting increases our ability to hear God. And so we could go on with all kinds of different examples in the Bible of how when the people fasted, In a sense, they just said to God, look, we're serious enough about this, God, that we're going to let go of something in order to grab something that you want to give us. We're going to let go in order to say to you, uh, you matter more than anything else, more than any of this stuff, you matter. And in those times, God spoke to them again and again and again. Finally, this brilliant quote from uh, Spurgeon, who saw a great revival. He saw people packed in 
to, to hear him preach, who impacted many lives through his writings. His sermons were written down and sent out, and less well known was, was his commitment to social transformation in and around London. He goes, our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle have been high days indeed. Never has heaven's gate stood wider. Never. Never have our hearts been nearer the central glory. We long for God's heaven to open wider. God says, okay, how much do you long for that? Prayer and fasting. How much do you long for that? Prayer and fasting. Let's pray.